بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد just to follow on from what we were speaking about in the first session there are a few other points that I want to cover that will help us to further understand and to facilitate our understanding of this subject inshallah we talked about the various sectarian groups we talked about the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah I think it's important now to actually discuss the two schools of Islamic theology that are considered to be the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, have been considered such for the centuries before us. Those are the Ash'adis and the Maturidis. Now just to clarify some of these points, the Maturidis are sometimes also labeled as Ash'adis. And that's just like a dominant name that covers both of them. So when the sectarians will speak about the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah as such, or the mainstream orthodoxy, they will say Ash'aris. And they will mean by that the Maturidis as well. The Maturidis in general are a smaller group comparatively to the Ash'aris when you actually separate them. The way this was formed was in view of all of the sectarian ideas that were coming about that we discussed earlier on. The Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the scholars of the Ummah, they began to, to respond to these things. They began to respond to these uh, problems. Baghdad was a main place for these problems. Basra and other areas were also problematic. Imam Abu Hanifa himself says that I went to Basra so many times in order to debate with, with them and silence the sectarians. Baghdad became a hotspot for this. A lot of Mu'tazila. In fact, Abu Ali al-Jubba'i was one of the greatest of the Mu'tazili scholars of the time. He had a stepson, Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari, who he brought up as a Mu'tazili. Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari had many qualities. One of them was that he was a great speaker and so on, which Abu Ali al-Jubba'i was not. Abu Ali al-Jubba'i was a very, very great scholar of the Mu'tazili ideology, but he was not a much of a spokesperson, whereas... Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari was. And all eyes were on Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari. And he, he became very well known. What happened then is, there's numerous reasons given for the change that took place in Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari's ideology and in his life in the midst of all of this. One opinion that's mentioned is that once on an issue of Islamic theology... He addressed his teacher, Abu Ali al-Jubba'i, that what do you say about three people who die? One died as a sinner, adult and a sinner. One died as an adult but as a pious person. And the third died as a child. What do you say about these three individuals in terms of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will deal with them? Paradise and hell. See, this was all in relationship to the opinion of the Mu'tazili that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to do what's in the best interest of people. Alright, keep that in mind. This is what this is all about. Allah is forced to do what's in the best interest of each individual. So, Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari asked this question. Abu Ali al-Jubba'i said that the sinner, Allah will send him to hell. The pious person... Go to paradise. Very simple for the Mu'tazilis to put people here and there. The young one, he'll go neither to paradise, neither hell. Right? Very simple. So then, he first asked him about the young child. 
that what happens if the young child says to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that why didn't you let me grow up and be good so that I could be in paradise? Why did you leave me in this kind of intermediate position? So he'll say that no, what Allah will say is that I knew you were going to be a sinner had you grown up. So I gave you death at an early age. So all fine so far, according to their ideology, right? So then Abu Hassan actually asked that question, that what then if the sinner who died as an adult and sent to hell, why, what happens if he says to Allah that, why didn't you give me death at an early age as well, so that at least I'd be saved from the torment of hell? That's where Abu Ali al-Jubbai was not able to respond. Now remember, all of this is in view of their ideology that Allah has to do what's in the best interest of the individual. So some say that that was a turning point in his life. Others have related other things that one day he disappeared. He didn't come out for about 13 or 15 or 18 or you know number of days, several days. When he did come, come out, he went into the main masjid, onto the mimbar, and he declared there that what I used to believe in, I renounce those things, just as I take off my garment today. He took off his garment, his overgarment that he had on. Just the way I take this off, I also shed myself of the ideas that I had before. And now what I believe in is contained in these books and he had some written material which he gave out. Allah knows best. But that was the savior for the Islamic faith at the time. Shaykh Abdul Hassan al-Nadwi has actually included him in the Saviors of Islamic Spirit series as well. Until now, because the other ulama were not necessarily very versed in epistemology and these various disciplines that had been inherited from the Greeks, he was very well versed in that and he was able to respond using that same methodology. I mean, he was the greatest of them of the time. So he was able to turn around and just break their ideas. This happened in Baghdad, in Iraq. The Mu'tazili problem also reached, echoes of this also reached the Mawara'u Nahr area, which is further north, above Iran today. Actually north of Iran, Uzbekistan, that whole area is called the Transox Mawara'u Nahr, beyond the land, beyond the river. I mean, this was another center of learning. Many of the Hanafi ulama came from that area. In fact, Imam Bukhari is from that area, from Bukhara. Imam Tirmidhi is from that area, Tirmidh, which both of these cities are in, in, in Uzbekistan today. Right? Samarkandi. All of these. Naysapur is uh, further south. It's, it's, in, it's in Iran today, Naysapur. It's Abu Mansur al-Maturidi stood up to defend the faith then. Though they were working in different areas, a lot of the conclusions that were reached were the same because they were drawing from the orthodox, they were drawing from the sharia, from the Qur'an and the sunnah. Though the methodology was sometimes different, the maturidis, they were willing to use aql as well as long as it didn't mean compromising the naql, compromising the transmitted sources. But in order to just help to understand, they would use the aql. The Ash'aris would do so as well, but a lot more restrictively. So they were not like, there was another group at the time who were the Hadith scholars. They were specifically called Hadith scholars because that was their main focus. They were very, very against using any kind of logical arguments beyond qala Allah, qala Rasul. Beyond, you know, just quotation from the Sharia. Now obviously when there's a problem, you have to respond to it at that level. In order to convince people and bring people back from the fitna. That's what these two were doing. 
Alright? So you could you could say that the hadith scholars were on one side being extremely restricted in that and they would not use aql at all. They would just uh, want to quote. Then you had the Ash'aris and the Namaturis kind of in the middle. But the Ash'aris were closer to that side. The Maturidis were a bit more, as long as they didn't compromise any of the sources of Sharia, just to help to understand. So one was Abu Mansur al-Maturidi. One was Abu hasan al-Ash'ari. Abu hasan al-Ash'ari, he passed away in 324 Hijri, which is about 935 CE. And Abu Mansur al-Maturidi passed away in 333. So just, uh, you know, 10 years or so afterwards, 944 uh, CE. Abu Zahra, he mentions in his Al-Madhahib al-Islamiyyah, Abu Mansur al-Maturidi and Abu hasan al-Ash'ari were contemporaries, both were striving in the same cause, the difference was that Imam Ash'ari was geographically closer to the camps of the opponents, meaning the Mu'tazilis. Basra had been the birthplace of the Mu'tazili ideology and the place from where it grew and spread. And it was also one of the main fronts in the ideological war between the Mu'tazili, Mu'tazila and the scholars of hadith and jurisprudence. Though Abu Mansur al-Maturidi was far from this battlefield, its echoes had reached the lands where he lived and hence there was Mu'tazila in Transoxiana, mimicking the Mu'tazila of Iraq, and it was Maturidi who stood up to combat them. Now that's the inception of them as a, the birth of these groups, right? They didn't say this is the Ash'ari Madhab, or the Maturidi Madhab of the time. This is some, a name that developed later. What happened then is, Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari obviously taught people, there were people who took this from the mainstream, Baqillani, Imam al-Haramain, Abdul Malik al-Juwaini, Imam Ghazali. All of these were scholars who followed the Ash'ari point of view and further developed this madhab, this school of Islamic theology. It became known as the Ash'ari school of thought. Today what is known and what we have of the Ash'ari school of thought is not necessarily reflective of all of the opinions of Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari when he passed away. Imam Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari has gone through three different periods in his life. And they say his final point of view was of no ta'wil, of consigning the ambiguous verses of the Qur'an and the sunnah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as was the way of the true salaf. Now there's a lot of contention here. Some people today try to say that no, his opinion was salaf, but they project another idea onto that. I'll talk about that when we talk about the tafweed issue. One thing for sure is that the Ash'ari books of theology today has been way more developed than it, when it was at the time of Abu Hassan Ash'ari and he, it was not necessarily what he believed in to be the way to deal with this. Right? It's not wrong, it's a different methodology. He decided to just stay according to the more safer course of action. The difference between the Ash'ari school of thought and the Maturidi school of thought is that the Maturidi school, the ideas that are portrayed and uh, expounded in the Maturidi school of thought, a lot of the distinctive ideas that they have come from Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. A lot of people don't know this, but Imam Abu Hanifa was a theologian par excellence before he was a jurist and a faqih. And he spent a lot of time in that. He would go out to debate with people. People would actually point out, this is the person you know, to deal with these issues. Great theologian, and his students as well. Then he gave that up and he focused on 
jurisprudence and he became a master in that as well. I mean, he's just a natural genius. Abu Mansur al-Maturidi was a great Hanafi scholar, having studied under Jews Jani and others. He had inherited these theological ideas and research of Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. Majority of that is what he was expounding. So I would say that in reality, the Maturidi school is an older school in the sense that a lot of the research had taken place much earlier from Abu Hanifa's time and it was passed down. Some people say that a lot of these things cannot be from Abu Hanifa because a lot of these fitnas did not exist, a lot of these problems did not exist at his time. But you see the, the Hanafi madhab, even in fiqh, is such that there are many, many issues in there which did not take place earlier on. These were hypothetical issues that they dealt with for time to come. Right? I mean, this is the beauty of the school. Likewise, Imam Abu Hanifa was able to foresee problems and talk about them. That's one of the responses that have been given about this criticism that whatever is contained in Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar, for example, some of the things Imam Abu Hanifa said, can't be from him because some of these issues did not arise at the time. And Allah knows best. The Ash'ari school, again, it was developed afterwards. They were both drawing from the main theme as the mainstream ideology, but just the methodology by which you propounded your ideas and tried to convince people that the wrong way was the wrong way and the right way was the right way, that was developed later on. That's why, very interesting, when you come to hadith and other things, you talk about the early generations. You know, you have the salaf and the khalaf. So you have the salaf as the first three generations and you have the khalaf afterwards. In aqidah, according to the ash'aris, the salaf are the first five generations. Because Baqillani and others were there up to four something, to the fifth hijri. So it's after that that you get the khalaf or the later scholars. It's very interesting that is, right? Another thing about the two schools is that there are no core fundamental differences between them that lead one to call the other kafir or completely deviant off track. Subki, who is a Shafi and Ash'ari, he said, I've studied, looked through the works of Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, the Hanafi scholars and Tahawi. I've only found 13 points of difference, of which six can be considered more real differences. All the other differences are merely semantic. Just different ways of saying the same thing. For example, one group, if you ask them to define Iman, what is Iman? They'll say, Iman is conviction in the heart, confession with the tongue, and actions with your limbs. When you ask the other group, can you define Iman? They'll say, conviction in the heart, and confession with the tongue. They don't bring in actions. That's a big difference. In defining Iman, what makes a person a believer? So you think that that's a big difference of opinion. You think that that's serious. One is excluding actions, the other one is including actions. See, it's a semantic difference. There's no real difference there. Why? The one group, when they say that actions are part of Iman, they're only saying it to emphasize it, not to make it crucially from Iman. If you ask them that if there's somebody who has conviction, true conviction in the heart, confession with the tongue, but doesn't do good actions, is he still a believer? Does he still have Iman? They'll say, of course he does. So why do you put actions as part of the definition of Iman then? Oh, we do that because there was a group of people who considered actions to be completely relegated to the back. Remember the murji'ah? 
I to- uh, we, we talked about in the first session that they completely relegated actions to the back. They, were, they didn't give it much significance. So just to encourage people that look, part of Iman is that. It was a response to the murji'ah. See what I'm saying? When you ask the other group, why did you not include actions as part of your definition of Iman? Well, they said, we were dealing with the khawarij, who said that actions were part of Iman. And if you did not act, fulfill the obligations in your kafir, so we made sure that that definition was correctly understood according to our challenges that we had. If you take one person who is a sinner but still a believer, both of them will call him mu'min. Alright? So that's a semantic difference. It's just two ways of saying the same thing, but based on different circumstances. So the majority of the ikhtilaf are like that. Six are more serious in the sense that they're more real. But they're not critical and serious that leads one to call the other kafir. But they, again, we'll cover some of those inshallah. Again, there's a difference of opinion about some of them, whether they're actually semantic, some of them, are, uh, whether they're even semantic or ma'nawi. But there's respect between the two groups, both are sunnah and jama'ah. Just to give you a little breakdown, Malikis are predominantly always Ash'ari. Hardly any problems on that side. Shafi'is are primarily Ash'ari. Some became Maturidi. And then you had some others who had some other sectarian ideas. Majority Ash'ari though. And some of their main scholars were Ash'aris. You know, like Imam Al-Haramain, Ghazali and others. Then you have the Hanafis. They're primarily Maturidi. There's a small minority that's Mu'tazili. Like you have the author of Kashaf, Zamakhshari. He was a Mu'tazili by Aqidah, but Hanafi in Furu. There's quite a few like that. Good fuqaha. But when it comes to Aqidah, they're Mu'tazili. In fact, there's one of them who starts his book, Alhamdulillah, Illadi Khalaq al Quran. All praises to Allah who created the Quran. Just to write their emphasis on the createdness of the Quran according to the Mu'tazilis. The Hanbalis. The early leaders and the great Hanbali scholars, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and the other great ones, they were all on the mainstream. Unfortunately, a lot of the others, they went into either tajseem, clear tajseem, clear anthropomorphism, or later on crypto-anthropomorphism, or deviant ideas that were different from the majority. Unfortunately, the Hanbalis have suffered quite a bit in that regard. Like Taftazani mentions, كَمَا قَالَ بَعْضُ الْحَنَابِلَ regarding a particular issue in his commentary on Nasafi. Now, Ilmul Kalam. See, you're going to hear a lot of slogans out there, a lot of debate out there. Ilmul Kalam is haram. So some people may want to call this class that we're having as a discussion of Ilmul Kalam and thus condemnable. We need to clarify Kalam. You see, at one point in history, during the time of the Mu'tazila and beyond that as well, was a lot of serious debate going on about Ilmul Kalam. Hair-splitting issues. Beyond the basics and fundamentals, they would go into the deeper issues. For example, Mullah Ali Al-Qari in his commentary, it's about a 350-page commentary on Abu Hanifa's Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar. And he spends about 40-something pages just on the issue of Kalam. Because so it was debated so much, it was debated so intricately on small issues, there would just be debates. I've read some of these debates, and I'm telling you, they are just so complex, and they seem to be so useless. Just passing of time, an intellectual exercise basically, just to prove one over the other person in some cases. That's why you have Abu Yusuf, Imam Shafi, and all the great scholars condemning Ilm al-Kalam. 
What were they condemning? They were condemning these hair-splitting debates that was going on. Not the study of what is required of us to believe. That's not what was condemned. What was condemned was the extreme debates that were taking place. That needs to be clarified. Ghazali speaks about Ilmul Kalam and says there is the good in it, there's the bad in it. And he speaks about that Imam Al-Haramain and all of these other scholars. We would call that polemical theology. Polemics when you're dealing with just argumentation and disputing, that's what was problematic. But pure theology where you need to discuss things based on the challenges of the time as to what is required of us to believe, right? When somebody creates a confusion in the ummah, you have to basically be able to facilitate and understand. An example of this would be evolution is a fairly recent concept that was thrown into the masses. People are confused. So now we need to respond to that. That kind of kalam is fine. Because what we're doing is taking the Ahlul Sunnah Jama'ah, their ideas and just answering these problems in, based on those circumstances and the needs of the time. When you study Aqidah and when you look at Imam Tahawi's work or Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar for example, you'll find that it primarily deals with one of three major themes. The first one is called Ilahiyat. Right? Ilahiyat. From the word Ilah. Basically, ilahiyat uh, is the discussion on the divine being, Allah, and His attributes. That normally takes up at least half of any book. And you'll see that as you study this. But half the book is normally taken up by ilahiyat, because it's so important, it's so complex, because it's so beyond us. So it's a small window that we be, we've been given to understand whatever we, we can understand. Number two, the second theme is nubuwat. These are the functions of prophethood or prophecy. So about the prophets, what we believe about the prophets and everything. They were inerrant, they never committed sins, etc. So these are some of the beliefs that we need to have. They're discussed in the second category. And number three, the other aspect, which is normally the easiest aspect of all of these, is the eschatology and the, the things which come after death. Paradise and hell, the intermediate realm, etc., etc. You know, angels and so on and so forth. These are called the mughayyabat. Mughayyabat, Mim, Ghain, Ya, Ba, Alifta, Mughayyabat. Things that have been kept hidden from us. Ilahiyat is normally the most complex because we're dealing in there with a being, you know, we're discussing a being that's so beyond and transcendent, and we're so limited in our understanding. Then the Nubuwat and then the Mughayyabat. Some of the other points before we actually start that will make it easy for us, some terminology. Now, some of these terminology are later developments. They were not necessarily there in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. But they become more important. There's nothing wrong with them. right? The ijma of the ummah is the proof of their validity and permissibility. For example, the word qadim, which means eternal. Qadim means eternal, ancient, without beginning. That's not a word necessarily used in hadith. It's not one of the asma'ullah al-husna. But the ulama and the generations have agreed throughout that this is a word that can be used for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to describe His pre-eternality, His beginninglessness. So, you can't be so great literalist that you say if this word was not used there, it's haram to use. I mean, that's a very limited way of thinking and looking at things. These are just terminology that have come up later on that aptly explain something. Those problems were not there at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. These problems are now 
we need to be able to discuss them and put people back on a straight path. So based on that, because we're going to be dealing with discussions about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He's a being, He's an essence, He is an entity. But His entity, His essence is very different from the essence of all creation. So the creation has a certain type of entity, and Allah has a different type of entity. Then you have those things which are impossible or inconceivable, which cannot be. Those are impossible beings. So basically, logically speaking, we've got three types of beings. Right? We've got three types of beings. One is the necessary being. The being who is necessary, who has to be existent for anything else to come into existence. He can't not be. You know, he can't be unexistent. He has to be there. And there's only one entity like that, which is Allah and His attributes. Those have always been there. Now the necessarily existent, by definition of being necessary, has to always be there. So he can't have a beginning, because he's beginningless. He can't have an end, because he's endless and he's necessary. Okay? So Allah is the only necessary being with his attributes. He is beginningless and he is endless. He's pre-eternal and post-eternal. He has to be existent. Then you have the impossible beings, what you call the mustahilul wujud. Alright? Don't worry about the Arabic terms too much unless you understand Arabic and you want to write those down, that's up to you. So first one is called wajibul wujud, which is Allah. Then you have the mustahilul wujud, which is the impossible being inconceivable being, impossible being. It is not possible for that being to come into existence. For example, an equal to Allah, a peer of Allah, a partner to Allah. Now the whole discussion that comes about as to whether Allah can create an equal or not, and this was one of the problems we had in our previous Aqidah Tahawi Dars number 3. We had some hypothetical scenarios that we were talking about. But we took that down. Can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create an equal? Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri mentioned that that's possible, but he won't do it, etc. I mean, there are some discussions there. But the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the majority opinion, the opinion, is that no, he cannot. He cannot create an equal to him. Now, when you hear that for the first time, you think that that's limiting Allah. Then how is He powerful over all things? Well, the whole question is this. This is a paradox. Allah is that one single unique being who has all of these powers and these attributes. If there was an equal to Him, there would be no... Allah would lose that uniqueness. It's a paradox. It would not work. That's why the scholars have said that Allah does not have the ability over the impossible because that defies the self-nature of something. If there's one entity who's unique, because he's one, and he's all-powerful, create someone else like that, it cancels each other out. Again, we're just discussing this from a logical point of view to reach this conclusion that Allah is one. And He's the only one like that. He does not have the ability on the impossible, because that's self-defying, that's stupid, it's absurd, it's an absurdity. Because it's an absurdity, it's an impossible. So what's an impossible being? A partner to Allah. 
That's an impossible being. It can never come into existence. It's impossible. So now you've understood. We've got a necessary being. We've got an impossible being. And thirdly, is where everybody else comes into the picture, are the possible beings. Possible means, means they could come into existence or they will remain unexistent. It's just as Allah chooses. Allah is the one who makes the decision. He is the one who wills somebody to come into being. He knows who is unexistent. He knows how they will be if He brought them into existence. He knows all of these things from before. And this is exactly the things that Imam Taha will be speaking about. Where he talks about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything from eternity about what will come into being when He brings them into being. Right? And Allah is the one who chooses that. So our mere existence here and our transfer from the abode of unexistence to existence is by merit of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only. And it's only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that has that ability. So it's that necessary existence who allows the possible existence to come into being and who decides whether they will stay unexistent or become existent. Okay, so that's just... Before we start, you should be able to place ourselves into where we are. Another thing which is very important is a verse in the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ There is none like Allah. I mean, this is the common kind of meaning that is given for this verse. لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ There is nothing like Allah. Think about that in all of its possibilities. You have to negate any likeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You talk about His entity, you talk about His attributes, you talk about His actions. There's nothing like Allah. Anything that comes into your mind, it has to be beyond that. Allah is beyond that. So you can never conceive Allah. لا تدركه الأبصار If you look at this verse actually, ليس كمثله شيء Now this will be more appreciated by those who understand Arabic to some level. Let's break it down. It's a very eloquent way of saying what it's saying. Laysa means there is not. It's a verb. Laysa means there is not. Ka. Laysa, ka. Ka means to be like. The likeness. An equal. A like. Mithil. Also means the same thing. Ka, mithil. You've got two words that are together. Ka mithli he. He means, it's a pronoun. Like him. So there is nothing like the like of him. Shay, something. So there is nothing, shay, and you put laysa and shay, there is nothing like the like of him. If you were to translate this verbatim or literally, this is what the translation would be. There is nothing like the like of Allah. What you're saying basically is that if we hypothetically assume that Allah had a likeness, another, then there is nothing even like that. So, more conclusively, there is nothing like Allah. You understand the logic? No, when we say, there's nobody like you in this world. I'm saying, there's nobody that's like you. If I say, there's nobody like the like of you, that means something even greater. Like, if we say that there was somebody who's like you, then there's not even anybody like that. So it's like a second degree, right? So it's more of an emphasis on rejecting likeness, right? But don't do that translation when you're talking to common people. It's just going to confuse them. 
Right? Because the point of it is to say there's absolutely no likeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in anything. You have to understand that. And if you get this right, a lot of the stuff we're going to read, now thought about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would be way more clarified. There's a lot more detail to what I'm saying and for further detail, we are working on a commentary of Gida Tahawiyah, primarily Maidani's commentary, along with uh, notes from Ghaznawi's and uh, Babarti's and other commentaries, so it'll be uh, you know, a more comprehensive commentary. But for the time being, if you want something to study and to you know, reinforce what I just talked about for further detail, you can get the translation of Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar that was published recently. This has a lot of the discussions that we'll be covering today anyway. And make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq to finish off the Aqidah Tahawiyah commentary soon as well. Now to start the book, Imam Tahawi, he begins with the Bismillah. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. In the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Merciful. The translation that's being used today, I believe the organizers took permission from Zaytuna Institute. It's a translation by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. It's a very good translation. I think there were a number of other translations by Iqbal Azmi and there's some other translations as well that are available online for free. Uh, this particular one, the reason he did it again, he explained to me that uh, he showed me how he went into the, the Latin roots of the words to try to uh, get the exact meaning. A lot of the other translations out there, they had to resort to explanatory sentences in order to explain because Tahawi's work is very, very succinct, is very eloquent, is very particular about the way he said things. In order to transport that into English using you know, like a similar number of words is very difficult. And I think that's the speciality of this particular translation. I just wish he would have added uh, notes that would have further elaborated on certain points. But it's not a commentary, it's a translation. And it's a very good translation at that. Allah reward them, they gave permission, I believe, to the organizers to use this. Imam Tahawi begins with, in the name of God, the beneficent, the merciful... We're talking to all Muslims here, so I don't think there should be any misunderstanding of the word Allah here. So I'm going to just read God as Allah, because I think that's the better way of saying it, right? Though, in order to explain to non-Muslims, there's not a problem of saying the word God, if it's understood in the correct meaning as well. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, in the name of God, the beneficent, the merciful. First, he begins with a khutbah, which is the way of the Islamic scholars, which is to praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and to draw from that... Allah's tawfiq and guidance, which is very important because especially when you're doing a work of the deen or in anything, we've been told to say bismillah, we've been told to invoke Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, praise belongs to Allah alone, Lord of the worlds. When you're saying alhamdulillah, this alif lam in here, al, alhamdulillah, this is in Arabic what they call istighraq, the all-encompassing al, which basically means that all praises means any praise that you can fathom, any praise that you can comprehend and think about is due to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like the Prophet ﷺ when he'll be in sajda, and he actually said in a dua, Oh Allah, I ask you and I praise you based on how you have praised yourself. Because there's a lot of things about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we don't know. There's praises which are beyond us. Some of these special praises will be inspired to the Prophet ﷺ in that state of prostration when he goes to seek the intercession on the Day of Judgment. So all praises to Allah, the Lord of the Alameen, the worlds. The word Alam is a very, very interesting term. The Alam, to define it very easily and simply, is everything besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is called the Alam. The Alam comes from Ain, Lam, Meem, or Alam, 
which basically means a sign, an indicator. Everything in the world is an indicator to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator. In fact, had there been no creation, it's, it, it would be right to say, had there been no creation, Allah would not have been recognized. He would not have been known had there been no creation. Its creation was created and the signs are so inherent and so essential and so intrinsic in anything that there's no way that a person can deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Unless there's a lot of perversion and adulteration of the mind. In fact, the biggest proof of the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that the majority of the inhabitants of the world throughout the centuries have believed in this supreme being, though they may have called him something else or may have had additional ideas. But in one supreme being, that's a natural faith. And that's the fitrah that the human being is created on. That's the biggest evidence. In fact, if you study the Qur'an, the Qur'an does not have many verses that deal with the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That go on to prove and that try to prove the existence and bring evidence on the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The majority of the proofs are about the oneness of Allah. Because even the people of the pagans of Makkah, they believed in Allah. But then they believed in a number of other intermediaries in between. They said that, مَا نَعْبُدُهُمْ إِلَّا لِيُقَرِّبُونَ إِلَى اللَّهِ زُلْفَةً we only worship them because they take us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're our agents in between. Very few people have rejected Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because it's such an essential reality. Yes, they're very loud. Those who reject, they're very loud. The atheists are very loud because it's all about slogans, right? But in reality, one of the biggest proofs is that the majority of the world believe in Allah. And that is the only way this world stays in motion. That is the life of this world, is that Allah's name is taken. قال العلامة حجة الإسلام أبو جعفر الوراق الطهاوي بمصر رحمه الله هذا ذكر بيان عقيدة أهل السنة والجماعة على مذهب فقهاء الملة أبي حنيفة النعمان بن ثابت الكوفي وأبي يوسف يعقوب بن إبراهيم الأنصاري وأبي عبد الله محمد بن الحسن الشيباني رضوان الله عليهم أجمعين وَمَا يَعْتَقِدُونَ مِنْ أُصُولِ الدِّينِ وَيَدِينُونَ بِهِ رَبَّ الْعَالَمِينَ Praise belongs to Allah alone, the Lord of the worlds. The most learned scholar, the proof of Islam, Abu Ja'far al-Warraq al-Tahawi from Egypt, may Allah shower him with mercy, states that the following is an exposition of the creed of the people of the prophetic way and the majority of scholars or the Ahlul Sunnah wal-Jama'ah in accordance with the understanding of Muslim jurists, such as Imam Abu Hanifa al-Nu'man ibn Thabit al-Kufi, Abu Yusuf Ya'qub ibn Ibrahim al-Ansari, and Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Shaybani. May Allah have mercy on them all. It includes their beliefs about the theological foundations of the religion upon which they base their worship of the Lord of the worlds. number of things are being said here. Number one, he's saying this in Egypt. He's from Egypt. That's his name. It's called the Hujjat al-Islam, the proof of Islam. He's saying that this is going to be the creed. The creed is like the set of tenets of faith. So this was something Imam Tahawi compiled. Imam Tahawi was also a follower of the Hanafi school of thought. 
he also benefited from what they had inherited from Abu Hanifa in terms of his theological ideas and research. This became more popular than any work by Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, for instance. Or in fact, works even ascribed to Abu Hanifa. He finds it sufficient as a support for this book to say this is from Abu Hanifa, this is based on the beliefs of Abu Hanifa, Abu Yusuf, and Imam Muhammad al-Shaybani. Which is basically saying two things. One is that these were authorities, they should be recognized as such, and they were recognized before. It's just being jurists as well, we've kind of you know toned down their image as a theologian. And this also shows that they're taking from a heritage. Everything is from the Quran and Sunnah. But he found it sufficient to say, this is the beliefs of these great scholars, Abu Hanifa, Abu Yusuf, and Imam Muhammad al-Shaybani. So the jama'ah is the sahaba, tabi'een, and others that come afterwards. The group, the majority. I'm not going to go into the biographies of these imams because that's something that you can read about quite easily. Uh, lots of books written about that. We're going to focus more on the aqidah aspects, right? So he says that, وَمَا يَعْتَقِدُونَ مِنْ أُصُولِ الدِّينِ See, when you go into the Arab lands, they actually, like in Azhar, for example, they actually have a, a faculty of hadith study, for example. They have another faculty of usuluddin. Aqidah is normally referred to as usuluddin. Usul is the plural of asal. Asal means a fundamental, a grounding principle. So the usul, the grounding principles of the faith, those things come before, the fundamentals come before the furu, the branches, the fiqh. So, how to pray... That's important, but before that, what we're supposed to believe is even more important. That's the foundation. That's why it's called Usul al-Din. Another name for it is Al-Fikhul Akbar, the greater science, the greater or the superior science. Because that's more important than Al-Fikhul Asghar, the smaller or the, the shorter science, which is basically referring to fiqh. Normally the word fiqh is referred to as jurisprudence. But Imam Abu Hanifa called this Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar. Meantime, people pick up this book and they think it's a book of how to pray and so on. But it's actually of the greater science, which is of Aqidah. Right? So he's called it Usul al-Deen. The deen is the religion. It's something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put into the ummah, which calls the people with any form of, you know, even a small amount of sensibility and understanding to take that which he has sent through the prophets. That's a deen. وَيَدِينُونَ بِهِ لِرَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ This is what they adopted. Now, any science that you study, right? Any science that you study, there's going to be some aspects to it that you need to understand the definition of it. عِلْمُ التَّوْحِيد Which is another name for this. That's the main component of this discussion. Is to know the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The word tawheed in Arabic is a transitive noun. It's a transitive noun. It's a muta'addi noun which means... Not to be one, but to declare something to be one. So tawheed, it's a word we use all the time, right? But tawheed means to declare something to be one. Because Allah is one, that's His reality. If nobody believes that, it doesn't affect Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the least. Tawheed for us is that we declare Allah to be one in every sense of that. That's what tawheed means. Tawheed, theoretically speaking, is defined as knowledge of the tenets of faith based on convincing proofs. We need convincing proofs to prove the knowledge of our beliefs of our deen. 
What's going to be discussed in this? What's the main object of discussion here? See, when you're discussing pharmacy, you're probably going to be discussing the reaction of certain chemicals with the human body. When you're discussing medicine, they're going to be discussing the human being from a biological health perspective. When you're studying ilmul hadith, you're going to be studying hadith from you know, various perspectives related to that. What is the object of study in this ilm al-tawheed or ilm usul al-deen? It's the discussion of the things which are known to us in terms of how those things relate to true belief, which includes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His attributes, His beginninglessness and endlessness, and everything else that relates to that. That's going to be the study. That's what we're going to be studying. What is the benefit of this? What are we hoping for? What's the aim and goal of this? As I mentioned already, is to get to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala better so that we can have sa'adat al-darain, which means fortune in this world and in the hereafter. And that's the perspective. So if you've come here for anything else, to learn something so you can argue with others, that is incorrect. If it's for, so that we can become more firmly grounded so that our faith is not shaken by somebody else, then that's one of the intentions that we should have. And that's the correct intention. He says, we assert about the unity of Allah, as did Imam Abu Hanifa, and the two aforementioned Imams, Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad al-Shaybani, may Allah have mercy on them, mercy on them believing with providence that Allah is one without partner. You know these topics and these headings, those headings are not from the original book. They were added by us so that we can just kind of separate that for our purposes here. Okay, so that's not something that the translator did. That's something that we added. He's trying to introduce the subject. After this, you know he says, قال imam the Imam said, everything that will come afterwards is going to be what the Imam said. Or what he's saying that the Imam said. This whole book is like one sentence or two sentences. Because everything is the stated. He's saying, Allah. Again, he's drawing on the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because tawfiq, we use this word a lot. What does it mean? Anybody know the meaning of tawfiq? Tawfiq is definitely ability. But... As Sayyid al-Jurjani has defined it in his ta'rifat is Ja'lullahi fi'la ibadihi muwafiqan lima yuhibbuhu wa yarda For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the actions of his servants in accordance with what Allah is pleased with and loves. So that's what we hope from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't want to do it alone. We want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make our actions conform to what he's pleased with. So let's start this section, this entire section, which is the longest section of the book, all the way until point 30. talks about Allah, His attributes, divine oneness or tawheed. There's going to be other sections afterwards in which he'll reiterate some of these points and further clarify them. So this is not the only section about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the book. Just to talk about the book in general, about the different sections, it's not like where he said, okay, the first half of the book is going to be about Allah and I'm going to bring all of the discussions about that in this section and then I'll move on to something else. That has been done by, for example, Laqani and Jawhar Tawheed and other authors. The earlier people didn't categorize them like that. You'll see it'll come back. Even Abu Hanifa will come back to issues. Talks about the kalam of Allah, goes on to something else, comes back and then reiterates that point because it's so important. Right? So you'll see that happening a lot. Don't get afraid of that. That's just the way the book is. The first point is very, very important, which is, إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَاحِدٌ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ 
Another important point is that you'll see different editions of this book would have split up the points in different ways. This one is done in 130 points. There's others which will do it differently. I don't think Imam Tahawi actually numbered the points. His was just like a straight prose and this was then distributed. Allah is one without partner. That's a very, very simple statement. But really, it's very comprehensive. As I said, you can read this book in two hours, but you could really open it up and discuss all the underlying points there as well. Inna Allah ta'ala wahidun la sharika Allah is one without partner. When he's saying one here, he doesn't mean it from a very simplistic point, like two, not two or three, that it's just one. One here refers to one in the full sense of it, that he's unique. Now this is where you can start taking notes about these points if you're, if you're not because you really need to understand these things to their depth because that's when you really appreciate that's when it will benefit us. Everybody goes around saying Allah is one. But then when it comes to some confusing issues then they start to falter. What this basically means is that Allah is one in His essence. So there is nothing like unto Him. There's no other essence or entity like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now the thing is that somebody could say, okay, I agree with that. There's no other essence like Allah. There's only one necessary being. But then there may be some others who have the same attributes of Allah. Or some of the same attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This, by saying Allah is one, we're also saying that He's also one in His attributes. Now somebody could say, okay, fine, we agree with that as well. Nobody can have the same attributes as Allah. Because Allah's attributes are eternal. He's eternal. That's, that works. There's an association of his attributes with him. His sifat. Others are not eternal. They can't have the same attributes as Allah which are eternal to a non-eternal being. It just doesn't work. So they might say, okay, we agree with that as well. That Allah is one in his essence and attributes. But then, there may be people who can do actions like Allah. In the same way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can do them and has the ability, there may be somebody who has that as well. So this is also to negate that kind of possibility that might arise in somebody's mind. Allah is one in His essence, in His attributes, and in His actions. There is nobody that, there is nobody else that can do anything like that. And He does this all without a partner. This is, he does it alone, without any partner whatsoever. La sharika without partner in his essence, attributes, or actions. Wala shay'a mithlahu, number two, nothing is like him. This is just to further clarify, that once you've understood this, that he's one, there's nothing else like him. So we understand and put everybody in their own categories. And obviously, he has no partner, which basically means that nothing is like him. If there was a like like him, then he wouldn't be one anymore. He wouldn't be unique anymore. So, this second point, nothing is like him, emphasizes the first point even more. Wala shay'a yu'jizuhu. This is all done in this logical order to a certain degree. We've established that Allah is one, there's nothing like him. Can there be somebody who can debilitate him? can enfeeble him in some way or the other. So that's clarified as well that no, there's 
nothing like that. Nothing debilitates him. There's nothing that can make him powerless. That refers both to there's nothing that can force him to bring something into existence that was not existent. There's nothing that can force him to put something out of existence as well. He does as he wishes. No deity exists save him. So there's nothing else that's worthy of worship. Because he's the only one who has these unique features and these unique qualities that make him worthy of worship. See, every word here means something. This is not just random set of statements. These are very carefully thought out statements. They complement each other and each means something and reject a particular incorrect belief. So no deity exists save him. After you recognize Allah as being this one true one who cannot be enfeebled and debilitated, he's the only one worthy of worship. See, that's just like Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All praises to Allah, Lord of the worlds. Lord of the worlds, that proves in itself that He is the one who brought everything into existence. He's the Lord. Rabb means the one who does tarbiyah, the one who brings something up stage by stage looking after them. That's why the Lord of the house, the Rabbul Bayt or the Rabbul Dar, which means the father for example, because he's bringing everybody up. The word is literally means to bring, nurture someone and bring somebody up. Maliki Yawmiddin. I've understood from the first part that Allah is the one who brought us into existence and He's the one who's sustaining us. Maliki Yawmiddin, He's also going to be the sovereign on the day of judgment. We've needed Him in the past, we need Him in the present, and we're also going to need Him in the future. Al-Rahman Al-Rahim. He is the one who is compassionate and most merciful. There's a lot of explanation to that, which I won't go into right now. إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُ وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ Now there's nothing but to say, only you can we worship, and do we worship, and only you do we seek assistance from. It's very orderly in terms of the way you get to these conclusions. So, no deity exists save him. A deity, ilah, is someone who everybody comes towards and who people resort to to find comfort and to find solace and to find assistance. And that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He's the only one like that. In the true sense of it, who's always there and available. People may go to their mothers, people may go to the bank, people may go here, there and the other, lawyers or whatever. But it's only Allah who is always available and has the power to help and assist and do. And He's the only one worthy of worship. قَدِيمٌ بِلَا إِبْتِدَاءٍ دَائِمٌ بِلَا إِنْتِهَاءٍ Now somebody could agree to all of this and say, well this is something that came up later on. Allah was not there before. Now it's to shut that door and to prove that Allah, He is pre-existent without origin. He didn't come from something else. He was not sourced from elsewhere. He has always been existent from the far reaches of eternity. Very difficult for us to fathom. Because we're so used to this cause and effect. Everything we see, I see this water in front of me, this bottle, it's telling me where it's coming from. You know, immediately your mind goes towards the highland springs, seems a bit Scottish, right? There's a bit of tartan on there. We're so used to this cause and effect. You've got a nice watch, you know, what company is it? What, who's the manufacturer? And then, you know, you make certain judgments based on that. We're so used to that. So when you talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the shaitan very easily tries to mislead somebody. And that's why the Prophet himself mentioned that shaitan will take you through this 
question and answer sessions of who created you, you're from, you know, your father, your parents, they came from theirs, and so on and so forth, until you get to Allah, then he's going to say that, where did Allah come from? Now because we're so used to that statement, it becomes very difficult sometimes for people to fathom that. He's clarifying that. He's an entity that's not governed by the rules that we're governed because he created those rules. So leave that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Clarify here, he is pre-existent without origin and eternal without end. That is the nature of the necessary being. That he always has to be there. He can't have not been there and come into existence and he can't ever disappear or perish. Again, that's clarified further with the next one. لا يفنى ولا يبيد he neither perishes nor ceases to exist. See, these two words, one of them means to kind of destruct, to disappear, to be destroyed. The other one is to phase out. You know, like sometimes you have an inhabitation. You hear about the Persians, you hear about this great city they had called Madain, Tesiphon. You're looking for that on the map, you won't find it today. Baghdad is a very recent city in, you know, in the history of things. Yeah, this great city of Madain with these great pillars and things like that. It was the most, one of the most magnificent cities of the time in the world. Hardly much left of it today. It's dwindled, it's gone. It phased out. People left. So there's a difference between something just suddenly disappearing by being destroyed and there's another thing by it phasing out. None of this happens to Allah. He stays relevant. He stays all-powerful. And the same power He has, He's always had. He doesn't add there's nothing subtracted from him, nothing diminishes from him, nothing is added to him. Going back to this, no deity exists except him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, لَوْ كَانَ فِيهِمَا آلِهَةٌ إِلَّا اللَّهُ لَفَسَدَتَ Again, it's talking about the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Had there been gods other than Allah, had there been deities other than Allah, the heavens and the earth would be in turmoil, would become corrupted. So that's seen as a very, very common proof. See, because in companies you only have one head, you may have a number of subheads beyond that, you know, the various supervisors beyond that, or board members or trustees or whatever you have, but you're supposed to have one emir. It's just the nature of the world. You have one chief of a tribe, traditionally speaking. Now someone would say, well, you know, this idea here, that had there been gods beside Allah, then the whole thing would have become corrupt. There would be chaos in the world. There could be two gods and they could just agree to do things together and not to disagree. Agree to not disagree. So this is not really a very strong proof. There's been a lot of debate about this. The point is that since the possibility exists, even in that kind of a setup, someone might say that there could be two gods they could agree to, to agree and not to disagree. But because the mere possibility exists of them having the ability to disagree, because if each of them are a god that has the ability and power to do anything they wanted, that mere possibility precludes the possibility of two gods. Because the possibility exists. They've agreed not to disagree, but the possibility exists that no, I want to make that guy walk in the rain today. Then I said, no, 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 I want to leave him home. Only one of them is going to come into being into existence. They can't both come into existence that a guy is walking in the rain and also staying at home because that's two uh, opposites coming together which for any discerning person is an impossibility and is inconceivable. So then the only other thing is that one, 
he's going to be in the rain walking or he's going to be at home. Whichever succeeds, then that means the other one is rendered powerless and is not very godly anymore. The point is that this is a proof of the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That the mere fact that we don't have chaos in the world. Yes, there's ozone problems and things like that. Someone might think, well, there, there is a greenhouse problem. That's a man-made problem. That's abuse and dhulm that the human being is doing and taking the universe out of its balance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَوَضَعَ الْمِيزَانِ Allah put and established the balance and we're trying to take it out of that. Every sin we commit is taking the world out of balance. Eventually it has an effect on the grand scheme of things. Allah says, وَلَا عَلَى بَعْضُهُمْ عَلَى بَعْضٍ Had there been more gods and each one would try to transgress over the others. And that's not a very good system. We see there's calmness in the system. See, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was not pre-eternal, was not qadim, and he said here, qadimun bila ibtida'i, then it would mean that he started somewhere. The question then arises, is that who created him then? So you can either do two, one of two things. You can either say that there was another God before him that created him. Okay, fine. Where did, who created that one? There was another one who created him. Who created that one? You can never end. You, you'd either have to do one or two things. You'd either have to go into infinity of these gods who have created the others, which is ridiculous. According to logic, that's a very absurd preposition. The other option is to say, okay, fine. God won. And, you know, take this in context here. Created by this God 2, created by God 3, and rather than go into what they call infinite regress, or tasalsul, which is absurd, will this third God 3 was then created by God 1. So God 1 is the creator of God 3. The problem there is you have what you call a circular reasoning, or dawr in Arabic. That's also problematic. When none of those work, you have to eventually conclude that there's a non-contingent beginning. A beginning that was there first who brought everything else into existence. So today there's a lot of people who don't believe in God, but they believe in this non-contingent beginning. They articulate in different ways. Philosophers, they said it was this main intellect, the master intellect, from which other intellects were created. Others have these different ideas of just calling this non-contingent beginning, not being able to exactly pinpoint, because they, they feel that they can't say it's Allah. They're just one step away. But Allah is that non-contingent beginning. He is the one who's always been there and put everything else into motion. So that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, qadimun bila ibtida'in. And is da'imun bila intiha'in. He'll always be existent. Because if he had always been there, he has to always remain there. Because when you look at the relativity, now this might be a bit complex here, but if you look at the whole fact of somebody always being in existence according to us in a time, but he's not in time, it's impossible for him to have an end. Because where does it begin, where does it start? When that doesn't apply to him, and you've established a beginning based on these evidences that we've just given, and these other absurdities that may take place if we don't believe that, then he can't have an end either. He will always remain. He's just that necessary being that's always been there. 
there's a lot of other discussion detail of the exactly of these details and that which I won't go into right now because you have to be willing to then study philosophy and all these concepts which get a bit confusing. You have some people say, well, what's this got to do with our deen and things like that? So it's not necessary. If you've got turmoil about the existence of Allah, then we can discuss it. But inshallah, this much is sufficient. Next one is, وَلَا يَكُونُ إِلَّا مَا يُرِيد. After we've explained and defined Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with, with these tenets, Nothing will be except what he wills. He is so much in control of everything that there is nothing whatsoever that will be except if he wills. You see, this may insinuate to some people that we're talking about something coming into existence. No. This is also to the level of something moving from one place to the other. My movement of my hand the movement of my hand from one place to the other, that's also something coming into being. It's a new movement. It's a new frame. If you look at it from you know, videography, it's a new frame. That's why there's this whole discussion on the atomic theory. Atomic philosophy. We don't want to uh, go into that. But basically, how did this particular individual who knew the ilm, who had this special knowledge given to him by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during the time of Sulaiman alayhi salam, how was he able to bring that throne at the blink of an eye from Yemen to Jerusalem. At the blink of an eye. Some people have propounded this, this theory that the world is constantly refreshing at some amazing rates. You're looking at somebody, you can't tell that they're being refreshed. It's just like you're looking at a computer screen, there's a refresh going on, but you can't really see it. Except when you video, you sometimes see the movement slightly. But it's a very fast refresh. You can change one frame, you can have one guy in the corner here, in the next frame he could be here. That's what they do in movies, right? in, in films, in videos. The whole world, they say, is constantly perishing and renewing itself. Constantly perishing and recreating itself. This is not necessary to believe in, or this is speculation, this is a theory. But even Muslims have actually talked about this. The atomic theory, they've called it. Very interesting. So it's just like, he has this ability that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him, to have the throne there in one frame, and then in the immediate next frame, it's here. And Allah knows best. Very interesting. I mean, our scholars have gone into great depths about these things. It's just right now, unfortunately, Muslims have forced and put themselves into this position, or allowed themselves to come into this position of just fighting over land and water and basically defending themselves where a lot of progress cannot be made, and it's, it's a sad case. But... I mean, in the high times, it's just amazing some of the things that the Muslim scholars were able to come up with and contribute. So nothing will be, not a leaf falls, as Allah said, وَمَا تَسْكُتُ مِنْ وَرَكَةٍ إِلَّا يَعْلَمُهَا He knows it, He willed it to be in that particular way. So now that we've been able to discuss Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at this level, is He somebody that can be understood and encompassed? The author says, لا تبلغه الأوهام ولا تدركه الأفهام Imaginations cannot attain him, comprehensions cannot perceive him. Imagine as much as you want, try to comprehend as much as possible, he cannot be comprehended. It's like trying to get the calculator to comprehend a human being, he's not programmed. You can make a master computer in which you program it to understand a human being to a certain level, but that's its jurisdiction. 
Even they go wrong. When you look at all these movies, they brag about these things. The Prophet ﷺ described paradise saying that it's something which no eye has ever seen the likes of, no ear has heard the description of, and something that's never even occurred to the heart of somebody. Which basically means you see this beautiful imagery of something, or landscape, or scenery. We hear the description. Paradise is supposed to be beyond that. And the creator of that is even beyond that in terms of comprehension. So, we are thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that in the Qur'an, He reveals something about Him. And by what He's created around us, He's shown us His greatness and His vastness and His beauty and His majesty and His greatness. وَلَا يُشْبِهُ الْأَنَامِ Creatures do not bear any similarity to Him. There's no similarity in any way, shape or form to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you can't take one and elude something from that about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Except to say that He's the creator and He's the master and He's the possessor of everything. Now the question that arises is that, fine, we agreed before that He doesn't perish. There was no beginning for Him, there's no end for Him. But during this life of His, like the human being, they need sleep. I know Aristotle said you don't need sleep. But, you know, I think any sane person would tell you that you do need some sleep because that's the nourishment of the heart to refresh yourself. Hayyun. Alive. Allah's life is different than our life. Allah's life is essential. Our life is not essential to us. It's not intrinsic to us. It's something that was given to us because we're possible beings. Allah is the necessary being and for that He has to have hayat, life. His life is essential to Him. It never leaves. It didn't come into being. It's always been with him. He never dies. That's a reiteration. All sustaining, he never sleeps. That means, again, a very important point that brings about a very important point. We agree he didn't come into being. He's always been there and he always will remain. But does he take a nap? Does he sleep? Does he take a rest? Is some form of sustenance beyond him? No. Qayyumun. The word Qayyum means all sustaining. He is the one to which everybody turns for sustenance and for life. He is the self-sustaining and the sustainer of everybody else. La yanam. He never sleeps. Doesn't slumber. La ta'khuduhu sinatun wala naum. Neither even a slumber nor sleep. He is active. As he is, he's always like that. Now the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has been described as an attribute. And it says nothing happens except what he wills. The will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a divine attribute. And he says that's been defined as an eternal attribute which is associated with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is possessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which determines every possible being which specifies every possible being as to whether it should stay unexistent or it should come into existence, how it should be, how it should not be. The will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the attribute which determines these things. This is only a possible meaning of what the will of Allah is because we're not privy to that information. When we speak about the... Just take this in mind, keep this in mind. When we speak about the attributes of Allah, we're saying things which are possibilities based on what our scholars have told us from the Quran and based on the Quran and Sunnah. 
nobody has been privy to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to such a level that, yes, the will of Allah is exactly like this. These are just possible descriptions based on what he said in the Qur'an. Him being alive, that's actually very important because that is necessary for all of the other attributes. Because if there's no life, then the other attributes can't exist as well. So the life is the most essential attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Life is the most essential attribute of Allah. We're going to stop here. We'll carry on from Hayyun Layamut. We'll talk a bit more about that and we'll continue inshallah.